0: There, we're trying to podcast here, bro. I'm <laughs> gonna Welcome back to The Common Law, Minnesota's best and only podcast about the Minnesota Supreme Court, recording today from Dean Phillips Lake Home. My name is Mark Thompson. I clerked for Justices Lilla Haug and McCaig last year.
1: And my name is Allison Key and I clerked for former justice, now Judge Strauss, and Justice Hudson last year at the court.
0: So we're gonna be talking about a family law case today called In Re Marriage of Gill, uh, about dissolution of uh, extremely valuable business assets. Uh, But before we do that, let's do legal news.
1: So the first bit of legal news that's worth mentioning is the appointment of a new Minnesota Supreme Court justice. So on April 17th, Governor Dayton appointed Representative Paul Teeson to fill the vacancy on the court that was left by Judge Strauss when he moved to the Eighth Circuit. First to note here, importantly, uh, Justice Teeson does follow the common law on Twitter. Um, and interestingly, Tyson had announced a run for governor at the end of last summer, summer 2017. He dropped out of that race in January of this year, potentially when he applied or was otherwise contacted to interview for this seat. And now he's the newest associate justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court. A couple... Things about his background. So up until his appointment last month, he was a sitting representative in the Minnesota House since 2013. He was representing District 61B, uh, which is southwest Minneapolis. He had also, in his time in the House, served as speaker. He was named to the court on a Tuesday. He left the legislature that Friday. Tyson earned his BA from Harvard University and his JD from the University of Chicago. So not a Minnesota guy. So let's listen to him say why he was excited to be a justice at his April 17th press conference that announced his appointment.
2: I am really excited and inspired uh, by this opportunity to serve as an associate justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court. Uh, Above all, because it really is an amazing opportunity to uh, serve the state that I love so much and care so deeply about.
1: So that was pretty safe, pretty boring, but he also expanded on how he plans to draw on his legislative experience when he's on the bench. Uh,
2: The Minnesota legislature is an amazing institution, uh, which I love. And my experience in the legislature has given me a deep, deep uh, respect for the work of each of the independent and co-equal branches of government, government and uh, of the court's distinct role in the dynamics of our government. Uh, I am now ready to move from policy making to principled interpretation of the law.
1: So other highlights from his press conference include this joke cracked by the chief. Now, today's announcement
3: is the sixth appointment to our seven-member court since 2012. As Chief Justice, I'm working very hard not to take this personally. (laughs) There is no question that this has
1: been a significant level of turnover on our court. Well, it was a decent joke by the Chief. Self-deprecating, easy to miss if you didn't see it coming. Classic for her.
0: Uh, Yeah, and the fifth justice on the court, appointed by Governor Dayton, um, so he's had a pretty big impact, uh, especially given that Uh, Now Justice Thiessen is currently age 51, so the court has a mandatory retirement age of 70. 51 is fairly young, uh, I think, based on the average of people being appointed. Um, So he'll be there for a while, assuming he's able to survive the elections. Overall, uh, he did an admirable job of saying boring anodyne things that don't add up to anything, probably what I would try to do if I was in his position.
1: Exactly. But. The only question that kind of tripped him up in the press conference, and maybe I'll play the clip quick of that, is when one member of the press kind of called him out on what he meant when he said in a clip we played previously that he plans to move to, quote, principled interpretation of the law. He
4: said you're going to move from policy
2: making to principled interpretation of the law. Elaborate a little bit on what you mean by the term principle interpretation. Well, I, the, the court uh, and the, the legal system has, you know, pretty clue, well, often very clear rules, at least standards and steps that you should take in terms of deciding what a case would be. And I think one of the strengths of the judicial system, one of its pieces of legitimacy, uh, is the exercise of restraint. Uh, And so applying um, what the law has said, what precedent has said, applying what the legislature has said in statute, applying how the court has interpreted the Constitution in the past and following those dictates uh, is what principled uh, judicial work would be, as opposed to kind of imposing my own view of what uh, what an outcome should be.
1: So in fairness, it's a difficult question, but if you're going to throw around that platitude you should probably have a follow-up for when someone asks you what you mean by principled interpretation to pull out of your pocket but i think he, i think he did well overall if that is as juicy as it gets i think justice Tyson is doing just fine
0: we've learned nothing from this uh we'll see what he does when he's on the court
1: yeah we'll put the link out to the full video uh in the show notes so if you want to mine it for any more clues but i think you're you're going to be left empty-handed so another quick piece of legal news for you is that the Minnesota Supreme Court, which oversees all the rules and such regarding the judiciary, Greenland a pilot project back in 2015 to permit audio, video, and photo coverage of certain types of criminal proceedings. So this didn't apply to certain cases, sexual assault or domestic violence cases, and it didn't apply to statements by victims unless they specifically gave consent. But the this pilot project allowed cameras in the courtrooms, in criminal cases, after a defendant was convicted, and not during the trial portion. So Minnesota already allows cameras in civil proceedings with the judge's permission and subject to a long list of exceptions, uh, which is in stark contrast to federal court where all cameras are prohibited. So the Minnesota Supreme Court had a hearing to review whether this pilot program should be incorporated into the permanent rules of criminal procedure in Minnesota, and it was held on April 25th. So the arguments here mirrored what I think you hear is the arguments made in federal court to keep cameras out, most specifically that the clips from the courtroom will be taken out of context and distort what actually occurs, but... At the court, there were some other concerns that were mentioned by the justices that I think were quite profound and went unanswered by the committee trying to incorporate this pilot program into uh, permanent rules, raised specifically by Justices Hudson and McKegg. It sounds like, from what you said earlier, you did
5: not see in the data that was gathered any uh, disproportionate minority representation, either in the cases which were um, uh, covered or the ones that were requested mm-hmm. for coverage. And that's good to hear. By the same token, I I do share Justice Page's concern that he echoed many, many years ago when we first were entering the pilot project that that, that can happen, that unfortunately, I think we still live in a society today where sometimes the media does, uh, on occasion, seem to overrepresent, particularly young African-American men as, you know, violent, and we know the rest. If we approve your recommendation, and we put this into the rules, what guarantees that we won't start to see um, over-representation of of people of color? I, I don't know that there is any guarantee. All I can tell you is from what we've seen, it
1: hasn't happened. So probably the most interesting part of that is Judge Larkin, the representative of the committee, says, I can't guarantee you that that's not going to be a problem. And then Justice McKegg asks a similar question of the media representative, who, again, has a similarly unsatisfying response. Mr. Ampherson, in in, um, response to the question posed by my
6: colleague, Justice Hudson, what is the media's response to ensure or guarantee or um, give us uh, a sense of that there's going to be this ongoing responsibility from the media? to give the fair representation across the board and that we don't start seeing an over-representation of people of color.
0: Uh, Your Honor, it it is a fair and important question. Uh, I cannot provide such guarantees.
1: Justice McKegg gets another unsatisfying answer on another issue that's really near to her heart, which would be children affected by cameras in the courtroom, which the media representative said we didn't really consider.
6: Mr. Davis,
1: can I ask you
6: a similar question to what I asked Judge Larkin, which is in your Consideration of the recommendation to the court to adopt um, the pilot, have you taken into account the, the impact this would have? For example, I think about kids going to school and their parent having been shown on television as being sentenced. We know that other kids can be unkind on occasion, and I, I worry about that, that sort of unintended consequence. And did you think about that um, when making this recommendation?
4: Well, that wasn't a consequence, so far as I know, that was addressed by the advisory committee.
1: Kind of some unanswered concerns, but there were some justices who did key into some positive aspects of having cameras in courtrooms specifically for the defendants themselves.
7: On the Wisconsin side, when the defendants at the table, they usually have a haircut and a shave and some decent clothes if they're not coming from the jail. So we are covering the same stories regardless of our access and uh, for the concerns that it'll so affect the, it. So, So
8: uh, a translation of your point here would be that uh, media access to trials is actually, or could be at least, actually better beneficial to the public perception of defendants rather than harmful to the question that
7: will access to the cameras make a defendant look bad i would say when you don't have a camera your only video or photo of a person is whatever the courtroom or the jail supplied to you unless the family gives you a different photograph
1: i think i don't that- think i've ever seen a mug shot that's uh that that is um, beautiful or handsome. So some positives for cameras in the courtrooms there. And the last clip I'll leave you with is again from Justice Hudson. And her comments here were in response to a media representative's statement that In his estimation, he hasn't really noticed any disproportionate representation of people of color when the media is choosing which cases to depict because these rules are in effect in other states where cameras are already in criminal courtrooms. And Justice Hudson kind of took a second to put that in perspective for him.
6: Mr. Goodspeed, did you notice any... Issues related to disproportionality or disproportionate representation of people of color in Wisconsin or in the other jurisdictions that you have been a reporter? I haven't
7: taken any you know, notes or statistical backup for that, but I haven't sensed any of that. When the stations are deciding or newspapers what they're going to cover, it's, it's the facts of the case, it's the interest, and those other issues don't come
2: up.
5: Council, I just want to—it's more an observation, maybe, than anything else. But in, when you were answering Justice McCaig's question, I think you—I I want to posit for you the possibility that sometimes, not just you, but but all of us, we have implicit biases that we carry, just because we're human beings and we're a product of our environments. And sometimes it's quite possible you don't notice things because it does—it looks right to you not just you personally, but that's your perspective. Um, I have found in my living that sometimes where you stand on issues depends on where you've been sitting. And what is obvious to one person might not be obvious to another because of the biases that we carry. And so what you notice is not always um, what other people notice.
7: That makes sense. Thank you.
0: I think that's that's a pretty solid debate on both sides, you can see the obvious benefit of having a more diverse court uh, just in this single instance. And I think you could t- maybe rephrase what Justice Hudson was saying in a less eloquent way when this media representative is talking about how f- facts and the, uh, the interest in facts rather than the race of the defendant would uh, be the thing that is the deciding factor for whether media cover the case. I think he's, he's kind of skipping over the main point that The idea that she's getting at is that there are biases that uh, make facts involving potentially uh, people of color more brilliant, more uh, likely to be covered than other similar facts.
1: Seems like a a, a lot of these points were not considered by the committee before they came before the court asking to make these permanent rules. So we will see what the court does with cameras in criminal courtrooms when they issue their ruling on that at some point. And I'm not sure when that'll be, but we'll let you know. So for our next segment, we will move into discussing some published opinions. True commenters will know that our inaugural episode was about Otto v. Wright County. So quick basic refresher. The 2015 legislature passed a law permitting counties to decide whether to use the state auditor's office to conduct audits of county finances or to use a private CPA firm. Otto sued, making two arguments. One, this law impermissibly and unconstitutionally violated a core function of her office, which the Minnesota Constitution, as interpreted by the Minnesota Supreme Court case Matson, says the legislature cannot do. And two, that this legislation impermissibly violated the Minnesota Constitution's single subject clause. So the opinion was released on April 18th, 2018, and was unanimous and written by the chief which is not entirely unexpected. Usually she tends to write some of these high-profile cases and she and the court as a whole try to make an effort to get these types of cases to be unanimous. So the court on these issues is speaking as a complete whole. So when the chief opens the analysis section of her opinion, stating the standard of review and including the line, we review de novo the constitutionality of statutes proceeding on the assumption that Minnesota statutes are constitutional, you kind of know the game is over for auto at that point. So the holding of that section of the case is, quote, we need not resolve the question of whether auditing the counties is a core function of the state auditor because even assuming that it is a core function, we conclude that the modification does not violate the separation of powers clause. So I thought that was interesting because my understanding of the law was that if it was a core function of her office, the legislature cannot touch it, but the court here seems to be saying that even if auditing counties is a core function, the modification that was made of that core function here doesn't violate constitutional separation of powers. And the court gives three reasons for it. One, unlike Matson, which was the primary case we were working from, which left the state treasurer with only minor duties, here the state auditor retained a host of her other duties that were fundamental to the role of this constitutional office. Two, the court said this didn't violate separation of powers because the legislature did not materially reduce the state auditor's budget when enacting the provisions that allow the counties to elect whether they'll use a private firm or the state auditor. And three, the state auditor retains the authority to examine all accounts and records relating to the receipt and disbursement of the public funds of each county at any time without notice. So that last portion we talked about in our first episode, how this seemed to be kind of the loophole in the legislation that permitted this to be constitutional, but we noted that the funding mechanism had changed in 2017. That kind of altered the dynamics of that reality by not directly reimbursing the auditor's office. But the court deals with that pretty important distinction of the funding mechanism in a footnote by saying, well, it doesn't alter her ability to examine all accounts and records when deemed in the public interest, and then says, we express no opinion on the impact of the 2017 amendments or future legislative revisions to the state auditor's duties or funding levels for that office.
0: I have two quick takeaways from this. Mm -hmm. One, I think that that initial line from the opinion about reviewing the law de novo, but with the presumption that Minnesota laws are constitutional is very interesting in that that is not de novo review. Um, I'm Not not that the court did something wrong, but that a presumption in favor of something is the opposite of de novo review. Mm-hmm. And I think you might find the court uh, putting more or less weight on one of those two factors based on how they want the case to come out. It's uh, like one of those things that yes, exactly. lawyers talk about that allows the court to have its cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. Um, Two, I just enjoyed the kind of victory lap that was being run by various Republicans in the wake of this opinion. Uh, Representative Jim Nash from Waconia said that uh, Auditor Otto was unable to see that the legislature has the ability to change laws uh, and called it a capricious lawsuit. (laughs) Uh, Different representative, Sarah Anderson from Plymouth, uh, said that Otto's assertion that the counties can't hire outside firms was ridiculous. Uh, Otto came back and said, I'll stand up for what's right, not what's politically expedient, and I don't regret it. I think she probably regrets it. I
1: don't know. I think... And we can get into talking about the second section of the opinion, but I think a public opinion of her arguments and attempts to change how the court and the legislature operate in regards to the single subject clause has won over some people. So I don't think she regrets that portion of her lawsuit. This initial portion on the core functions, maybe.
0: In my experience... The primary lens through which this case was covered in popular media was the cost to taxpayers of litigating it, which may not be the right way for the media to cover a case about substantive uh, separation of powers, but probably was not what Otter Otto's gubernatorial campaign manager was hoping to wake up to on multiple days Mm -hmm. from state newspapers.
1: So going forward, I think the more impactful part of this case will be the single subject clause portion. And I think it's fair to say that there's a growing cast of characters who are a little bit disgruntled about this section of the opinion. So it's worth maybe just quick reviewing the short language of the constitutional provision at issue. Article four, section 17 of the Minnesota Constitution provides that no law shall embrace more than one subject which shall be expressed in its title. And the court quotes that, and then nicely walks through the court's previously stated purposes for this provision. To prevent log rolling, a legislative process by which a number of different and disconnected subjects are united in one bill, and to prevent surprise and fraud upon the people and the legislature by failing to provide notice of the nature of the proposed legislation and the interests likely to be affected by the legislation. But I'll give you the holding here. The court says, consistent with our precedent, the subject, quote, the operation of state government, unquote, is not too broad to pass constitutional muster in a challenge to legislation that addresses the roles and responsibilities of state entities. We also conclude that our well-established test, germaneness, is satisfied here. They say we reach this conclusion even though other provisions of the bill may not be germane to the subject of the operation of the government those provisions are not before us in this constitutional challenge and we will not strike down a germane provision of law simply because other provisions in the law are not germane. And we also mentioned that in our last episode, how Otto's challenge on the single subject clause was relying on too broad of a proposition in relation to the specific provision she was challenging. The court also, interestingly, does take a side note to address the mere filament test, which we discussed in our first episode, to say that Kind of the road of precedent in this area of the single subject clause has wound a little too far. And court says, we're going back to basics here. We're sticking with the germaneness test. We're not going to this mere filament test. And I think that's a kind of a walk back and a move towards a more reasonable test. Though germaneness without any upper limit on how broad the subject can be is still testing the limits of a completely useless constitutional provision.
0: Yeah, color me skeptical. That It does sound like a, a more demanding, you know, if, if slightly, uh, test, but the fact that this case was able to pass it, I think, says all you need to know. Um, that this was like a straight up law ruling bill. People pretty much admitted that, and right. the court has busted.
1: So another case that resulted that's important to mention is the Webster case. So the first thing, again, that's important to note about this case is that the attorney for Webster does follow the common law on Twitter and he won. So I'm not comfortable calling that a coincidence because I don't know if it is.
0: This is like a horoscope, but if you follow the common law, it's good every time.
1: Good things happen. I can give a quick background on this case in three bullet points. So law enforcement in Minnesota, along with other states, is increasingly using biometric data to aid in their law enforcement investigations, things like images of faces, fingerprints, and even iris scans. Cops use devices to scan and identify people during stops and then also can access this, these images by grabbing them from social media. Tony Webster, a repeat player at the court in Minnesota Government Data Practices Act litigation, filed a Data Practices Act request to Hennepin County seeking a variety of records related to law enforcement's use of this new biometric technology. So his request was actually quite broad, essentially asking Hennepin County to search all law enforcement email messages for any words related to biometric technology like face recognition and iris scan. And they claimed that Searching their email for these keywords is burdensome, and the request was improper under the act. So, worked our way up to the Minnesota Supreme Court, and the Minnesota Supreme Court eventually agreed with Webster that Hennepin County failed to comply with the Data Practices Act by essentially ignoring his request, saying the county's procedures do not ensure prompt responses to requests for data as required by the Data Practices Act. They also though, the court also though, agreed with Hennepin County that its officials did not violate the act by failing to set up their email service specifically in a way to make it more amenable to these types of keyword searches, saying that there's not substantial evidence in the record to support the conclusion that the county's arrangement of records violates the Data Practices Act. The Minnesota Supreme Court, however, did not even touch the issue of whether searching for emails by keywords as a general proposition is appropriate under the Data Practices Act.
0: Right, nor did they touch the issue of whether a data request can be itself so burdensome as to not impose an obligation on the government to respond.
1: The reason they didn't touch that is because they decided they didn't have a jurisdiction over that specific question because Webster technically won on that issue below and then appealed on a separate issue and the court said we're not going to touch the issue you already won on below.
0: Webster uh, was not super jazzed about this. He said, quoted in the Star Tribune, It's really hard to be happy when I've waited so long for data that is public. The issue is they violated the law. Uh, There's another quote in that article from a First Amendment lawyer named Mark Anfinson, said the court's opinion is not significant. He said, quote, this has been followed for years as a potentially important ruling dealing with the collection of electronic data and government agencies. Instead, it's just a footnote. Mm. I think if we've learned anything about our friend Tony Webster, it's oh, that yeah. this is his not his last rodeo. And uh He'll new be Justice Paul Tyson should get acquainted because <laughs> uh they will meet again.
1: They will meet again. You do you, Tony Webster providing fodder for the common law for ages.
0: Our featured case this week is In Raid, The Marriage of Gill. Uh, this is about the marriage, divorce, and dissolution of assets between Francis Stephen Gill and Gretchen Zwakman Gill. Uh, so they married in 1993, and during that marriage, uh, Francis Stephen Gill, we're just going to call him husband, and we'll call Gretchen uh, wife. During that marriage, husband helped lead Talenti, which was a successful gelato company. Uh, and there was a fair bit of corporate drama that ensued. So in 2008, husband and a business partner purchased a majority ownership interest in Talenti. Uh, Husband set up an LLC to hold his interest and then transferred 20% of that, the interest in the LLC, to uh, his children. The remaining 80% was held in his name. Between 2008 and 2014, Talenti's value grew significantly. And uh, during that time, there was some more kind of corporate nonsense. There was the creation of a new company to hold assets. And uh, there was a sale of uh, most of the share of that holding company, blah, blah, blah. Not actually that relevant to the case. Um, In August 2014, the husband commenced uh, divorce proceedings. And with that divorce case proceeding, the husband also negotiated the sale of the holding company and the Talenti brand. In the contract for sale of the company, uh, the purchaser paid $180 million at closing and also agreed to make two earnout payments over the next two years. Uh, so what the what the earnout payments mean is there's a, a kind of formula based on revenue and other factors. And uh, they mean that the sellers of the company are going to get an additional amount of revenue assuming they meet certain requirements set in this formula so as will become relevant in the case if they fail to meet all of the revenue and sales and other requirements then there's no additional money but uh, I think the parties understood that it was a likelihood that this would happen perhaps uh, that would be disputed by one of the parties in the case and so this this functionally was additional contingent compensation in the uh, sale contract In addition to the purchase agreement, husband also negotiated an employment agreement with Unilever, which purchased uh, Talenti. The employment agreement uh, guaranteed certain compensation like a regular employment agreement to husband uh, for the next two years in in compensation for his uh, agreement to work for them. So we've got a sale of the business and uh, money that's flowing to husband because he was a partial owner, and then separately we have a two-year employment contract with additional compensation.
1: And he was compensated at over $300,000 per year. So there's no question that this was fair compensation for his services under the employment agreement.
0: So back to the marriage. Uh, the district court sets a valuation date for marital property in September 2014, uh, and a few things happen. The court decides to split the hundred and eighty million between husband and wife equally. No one disputes that. And the court also says that the earnout payments are the husband's non-marital property. So any money that he receives from that is his alone. Wife challenges that ruling, it heads all the way up to the state supreme court. Here we are.
1: One thing I think is interesting to note is that The Court of Appeals actually reversed that decision. I don't think we would be at the Minnesota Supreme Court if the Court of Appeals had affirmed. It's one of those cases that the Court of Appeals decision, I think, really affected their decision to take review in this case. And then before we get to the parties' arguments and oral argument, let's first cover who the attorneys are for the parties. Arguing for the appellant husband is heavy hitter Michael Cerisi of Cerisi Conlin and of Minnesota Tobacco Litigation fame. So he famously left Robbins, Kaplan, Miller, and Cerisi in 2015 to found his boutique firm at which he now practices. Arguing for respondent wife Gretchen Zwakmangill, is Alan Eidsness of Henson and Ephron. A fun fact about Mr. Idesness is that he argued his first case Case before the Minnesota Supreme Court as a law student in the 70s and he won that case and it's still good law.
0: A lot of money at stake here and some very fancy lawyers. Yeah. So because the issue in this case is pretty narrow the court does a good job of covering all of the main arguments in the oral argument so you'll hear a lot from them in this episode and we'll start with uh, the party's attorney I think opening with what's really the primary issue in the case.
8: Today we are here on a case that really rises and falls on the language of the purchase agreement. So I think
1: he's setting up the framing of this argument that a lot of the other justices keyed into as well, that the purchase agreement says the words, consideration in regards to the earnout payments. So the most basic point is that these earnout payments were part of consideration for Talindi at the time of the deal, therefore at the time of the valuation date. Therefore the wife is then entitled to fifty percent of
0: it. Right. And and the court was particularly interested in the fact that this was labeled consideration explicitly in the contract.
6: The council doesn't the purchase agreement specifically um state that the future um, payout is part of the consideration?
4: If there was a value to this contractual right, It was the burden of the respondent to put what that value was as of the valuation date.
5: There was no value of it. It's zero. But didn't they do that, and maybe this goes back to Justice McKaig's initial question, didn't they do that in Section 101 when they say, as additional consideration? Because if we go back to sort of first principles of contract law, they're saying, we're going to give you this for that. As additional consideration for the assets, the company shall also be eligible to receive the buyouts. And so it seems to me, when I read that again just as a principle of basic contract law that says to me that it's a part of the purchase price
1: i think the attorney there mike sarisi for the husband tries to make the point that though the words consider the word consideration is there as it relates to the earnout payments there are other portions of the contract when read in a whole make it very clear that it's only the cash transfer of 180 million was the purchase price for talenti and these earnout payments though they were described as consideration at one point in the purchase agreement, were actually for future work by the husband after the date of the valuation.
0: I think uh, Justice Trudich finds there to be other compelling facts showing that this was additional compensation, uh, including the fact that regardless of what words appeared in the contract, uh, this is a right to earn other money.
1: I think you're ignoring that the asset was sold for $180 million in cash, plus the right to earn either a payment, future payments of zero to up to $170 million.
4: The asset was sold for $180 million, so it's a contractual right obtained to get as additional consideration a contingent amount, totally speculative, unknown,
3: I don't agree
1: that it was totally speculative either because Um, the, these people in Talenti knew what they were doing. They knew what they were capable of. I agree it was a reach for them. They weren't sure if they would actually do it, but they had a pretty good idea that that was obtainable. Well, and, they- and it didn't depend on solely one person's efforts, like the, the like the company in Rogers was almost entirely one person's efforts.
0: So another way that the court tried to get at how to understand uh, this contingent right that was granted by the contract is looking at the status and value of the right in the time after the contract was signed. And a number of justices kind of had crossfire on this question.
3: And if if, um, after the transaction closes the next day, um, the prior owner, were to sue the purchaser for the earnout payments. I mean, that lawsuit would fail because nothing had been earned yet.
9: Zero, Your Honor. Counsel, if it's totally specula- speculative, let me ask a variation, the flip side of the Chief Justice's question, which is on the day after closing, in the Talenti, or, excuse me, the uh, Unilever uh, David Goliath deal, and what a great name David Goliath is. Um, on the day after the transaction, Unilever says we're not going to honor the earnout we're not going to honor the contractual expectancy that David Goliath has. Um, Would David Goliath be able to sue and obtain damages, or is it your position that would just be too speculative?
4: Well, they, they could sue to enforce the contractual right they couldn't get any damages because there were no damages. It hadn't even started yet.
5: Counsel, how do you respond, though, to uh, Mr. cerisi's argument, and I think it was in response to Justice Lillahog, that if after the, 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 the consummation of the deal uh, there was a lawsuit, that the, that you'd have to be suing for specific performance uh, of the contract itself because, the, because it's worth zero. It was worth zero at that point because no earnouts earn had been earned.
8: Well, that's exactly right, Your Honor. There would be a contract for specific performance, but that specific performance would then determine what the earnout is. You would have the right to make Unilever fulfill its obligations to pay you if you met those requirements of the extra revenue.
9: Council, I want to go back to the, your answer to my question that the value of the earnout on the day after closing on the deal was speculative. Um, are you agreeing with Mr. Cerisi that if um, if the day after the closing, this this contractual right, this expectancy, was put on the open market, it would be
8: worth zero. No, it was speculative. Doesn't mean that it's worth but, zero. It means that somebody could pay whatever they wanted to pay for it. But it's similar, Your Honor, to an option or a pension where it may be unmatured, unvested, as in Jansen, and you couldn't sell. So that the,
9: the amount pay. is the amount is speculative but it has value. I believe so.
1: And I think the justices did a really good job in that discussion with the attorneys Walking them through kind of the muddled arguments that they had been making. That one, this is an actual vested right that they would have the ability to sue on if it was ever taken away for them or a party had reneged on it. The right to earn these payments is a vested right, despite the number associated with the payments being speculative. And then at the end, I think Justice Littlehog does a great job drawing the distinction between despite the earnout formula calculating zero dollars the day after, there is value on the open market to having this right. And those were things that I don't think the attorneys, without the justices and those clips guiding them there, were going to ever tease out on their own. So another
0: kind of tack taken by uh, husband's attorney is to argue that really the entire value of these earnout payments derives from the husband's work that he would uh, complete after the divorce. And so there's no reason that wife should uh, be entitled to money flowing from the results of the company's performance in the years following the sale and the divorce, because this is all down to husband's post-divorce work. And I think the justices had varying opinions mm-hmm. about that.
3: Counsel, yes. how much does it does um, your position depend on the fact that? your client 's work is what contributed to the earnout payments going up i mean if let 's assume that the earnout payments were tied to the stock market or something wholly independent of, of any anybody 's personal efforts. So if the stock market gets to 24,000, the earnout payment kicks in. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, does, does your argument depend, how much does your argument depend on the fact that, that husband here was the workhorse in terms of increasing the amount of the earnout payment amount? Counsel, in yes. that
5: regard, I, I I'm wondering, um, uh, what is your response to respondents argument that there was no provision in the purchase agreement, um, uh, um, that tied the, the receipt of the earnouts to your client's um, uh, employment, and in fact, he was separately compensated, uh, rather handsomely, respondents would say, uh, for his efforts. And I'm trying to figure out what 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 your response is to that, but also what's the relationship, if any, between the fact that your client was separately compensated um, uh, for for his efforts and the fact that it does not appear that there's anything in the purchase agreement itself that. That, that ties the receipt of the earnout out agreements to, I, to what sure he does.
0: So I think you can see some resistance to a husband's argument that these earnout payments are really solely a function of what he's contributing to the company because both the Chief Justice and Justice Hudson are noting that this is separately uh, kind of enumerated compensation, And there are a lot of factors in the world that might influence what these numbers are other than uh, what husband's doing
1: what justice hudson was also hinting at in the end of her question was an argument made by the wife that husband was compensated at almost $400,000 for these 2 years so because he was being paid so handsomely as a salary then these earnout payments if they were also compensation and an additional salary essentially for the work he was continuing to do they would be entirely duplicative of the salary he was receiving which makes the argument that these were payments for his continuing work a little bit more difficult to sustain? And more evidence that comes out to support that framing of the wife's argument is that on his taxes, he reported the earnout payments that he received not as income, which would support the theory that it was a salary, but instead as capital gains on value that had already been
8: bestowed on him. And was tax
9: paid on the amount as, uh, uh, as income or as capital
8: gain? It's paid totally as capital gain. The agreement says that the, the purchase price was up to $350 million. The K1 and the tax returns reflect this was the first installment, the 180 million, of a possible $350 million transaction.
1: So, the argument was definitely made that these earnouts can't possibly just be for work done if he was salaried while he was doing that work as well. And as a matter of logic, $50 million for two years of work seems crazy. So what could possibly be the context of this arrangement? And Justice McCaig had one theory about how this bizarre payment structure arose.
6: Council, couldn't this also, couldn't you look at this as a little bit of planning on the husband's part for the divorce? Because when you look at, it um, looks like in Thanksgiving of 2014, he walks in and says he's selling the company. Um, 100% of the company is being sold the following Monday. You're going to get one half of that, and then whatever um, the rest of the payments that are that, I'm, that are going to be earned are po- are post-marital and you get none of that. I mean, isn't there an argument to be made that there was some planning going on here?
1: I love her wild theory, connecting of the dots there. I think
0: it's a bit of a wild theory as applied to this case, although I don't think it's that wild. But as a, a principle to think about, I think it's totally on point, because if you do what husband is asking the court to do here and say that all earnout payments set by contract are non-marital property in situations like this, you're, you're just creating a massive loophole in divorce asset allocation. Anytime I'm husband in a situation like this, I'm just going to write the contract so that I sell the company for $8. And then over the following two years, I get 40% of revenue, which will amount to $200 million.
1: I do think that's a very... Maybe not very, but quite a narrow factual situation because you would have to be selling a company in the midst of a divorce because the valuation date has to be essentially coinciding with the sale. And you have to be willing to stay on to work for the company. So I think it's a little more narrow than maybe you presented it.
0: Uh, perhaps. And I'm not, I don't traffic in family law very often, but I think it opens an avenue for manipulation. And Justice McKay is smart and wise to discuss it. <laughs>
1: I agree. I I think it's great she brought it up. I don't know what legal difference it would make, though, in this case to acknowledge that maybe that was the motivation behind this, the structure of the sale. And the husband's attorney, Mike Cerisi, might have been more effective in his response, in my mind, um, if he just, one, acted less incredulous at the suggestion, which was. And just said, I don't know why they structured it like that, but even if they had this motivation, I still win instead of trying to argue with her on the facts she laid out, which were all correct.
0: So a few notes for cleanup here. Um, one, there's a person of interest involved in this case <laughs> other than the Gills. That person is Dean Phillips, current candidate for the Democratic Party in the 5th Congressional District of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Also Did you aired- say 5th? Yeah, It's third. You're right. In the third congressional district of Minnesota. We're leaving that in. (laughs) Also heir to a uh, distilling fortune. He graduated uh, the University of Minnesota with an MBA and was immediately made president of this company, just like you and me. Uh,
1: I think his family also owns Phillips Eye Clinic, Eye Institute.
0: Didn't know that. Uh, Their holdings are significant. Uh, His life has not been difficult. And he was involved in the marketing of Talenti, and he came up very briefly in oral argument in this way. In fact, what Your Honor just mentioned, that it almost fell apart, it almost
4: did fall apart because one of the members Dean Phillips came in and said, "Look, let's try to get. More. We want more than 180 million. We think it's worth more. They don't, but let's let's ask for more." At the June meeting at his uh, lake home, and the, the the deal almost fell apart. Get it together,
1: Dean. Get it together.
0: There's only so much money in the world. You can only have so many lake homes. Deal with it.
1: So many gelato companies.
0: <laughs> uh, the other thing worth noting is that uh, the. Chief Justice is in charge of a lot of things, one of which is maintaining the kind of administration of oral argument. And so there are, there are lights in the Minnesota Supreme Courtroom. And when there's a red light at the end, that means your time is up. And attorneys are generally pretty observant of this and they will stop when they see the yellow light, which indicates that their time is uh, diminishing quickly. Occasionally, an attorney will not observe the red light and the chief will wield her hammer of authority. And you would have to basically
4: overturn Janssen, Rogers, Nardini, where it first went through all these formulas. Counsel. Gottsacker. Your red light's on. Your, on. your red light's on.
0: Oh, I'm sorry.
3: You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Thank
0: you very much. <laughs> I wonder, that was a regular bit of courtroom administration by the chief, but uh, Cerisi was a pretty aggressive advocate in this argument, as you probably heard in a few clips. And uh, he was making some choices that are unusual. He was at times interjecting while justices were speaking. Uh, His tone was fairly combative. Uh, Usually when a justice contradicts a, an attorney, there's some show of deference by the attorney if they're going to come back and say, uh, you know, I understand why you, you think that, but uh, Cerisi chose to uh, really fight bare knuckled here. And so I, I have just an ounce of suspicion that the chief lost patience with uh, Mr. Cerisi at the end of that argument.
1: No, possibly. Definitely using some trial lawyer tactics in that courtroom.
0: Indeed. And that wraps up uh, in Ray the Marriage of Gil. Allison, what did we learn today?
1: Today we learned that you should not do any deals at your lake home, Dean Phillips, lest they go horribly wrong.
0: Check out our website at thecommonlaw.com. Also check us out on Twitter and Facebook at The Common Law. Uh, Thanks, as always, to our communications director, Joy. Go to our website to leave feedback, angry or positive and see our free CLE calendar.
1: Have a nice one, calendars.